I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From WETA Classical in Washington, we're your guide to classical music. In this episode, WETA Classical's Evan Keeley joins me for a deep dive into the life of Antonin Dvorak. Using personal letters and writings from those who knew him, we get an intimate look at who Dvorak was and what shaped him and his music. We also examine an interview in New York City in which Dvorak laid out a plan for music in the United States. Plus, stay with us to the end for a hilarious story of Dvorak at the Met and a full performance of his iconic Symphony No. 9 from the New World. So many composers over the centuries have visited the United States, but one of them really stands out among them all, and that is Antonin Dvorak, because he did not just come here. He really embraced the culture and wrote music reflecting what he saw and experienced like no one else, I think. And stay with us to the end, as we will be enjoying a great performance of Dvorak's New World Symphony. And we're going to explore a lot of Dvorak's life through a publication in 1954, and it's a collection of his correspondences, letters that he wrote and received, and also reminiscences of him by those that personally knew him. So I think with these letters and recollections, we'll get a closer look at the man that is Antonin Dvorak. And actually, that starts us off right away with a great description of the composer's childhood. So often, Evan, we are the ones having to piece it all together, I think. But we hear from Dvorak himself in these reminiscences, and they're really fascinating. So let's go ahead and start with this. Uh, Read this for us, Evan, but I'll set the scene real quick. This is Dvorak telling us about his childhood area, and it feels like we're on a hill with him, like he has his arm around us, and he's just beautifully pointing out all of these different things. Look there at the little village with the long name of Nela Hozeves, and there, just below the castle of the Prince Lobakowitz, that low building, do you see it? That's where my father had his inn, at the same time carried on his trade of a butcher. It was in that little house that I was born, and here in this lovely countryside that I spent my poor childhood. The little church there, that's where I played my first violin solo. And what a fuss I was in that time, and how afraid I was when I tuned my fiddle, and how my bow shook at the first notes. But it turned out all right. When I had finished, there was a hum and a buzz throughout the whole choir. Everybody pressed round me, my friends smiled happily at me, and clapped me on the back good-naturedly. And our neighbor, the leader of the violins, gave me a whole groschen. That's a, a valuable coin. That was the happier side of my youth, the brighter moments. But even the darker side was not uninteresting, though it cost me many a tear. Look there. These are the places I used to visit with my father to buy all kinds of cattle beasts. And when my father entrusted me with one or other member of the brute creation, it would often out of sheer exuberance give me the slip or without more ado drag me into the nearest pond so that my situation was not exactly enviable. But all the calamities and trials of my young life were sweetened by music my guardian angel. That little church on the hill there is my old acquaintance. There, at fair times, I would play under the leadership of Liman, who was choir master there. What a beautiful description we have here. Part of it is you can almost kind of guess. Yes, he learns some music and he plays a violin solo and he's uh, um, praised and everything. But especially at the end there, imagine Dvorak, uh, the young Dvorak, trying to wrestle and wrangle these livestock and being dragged into a pond. I mean, that's right out of a movie. 
Yeah. And, you know, this uh, humble beginnings, his father's a butcher and has a small inn. And yeah. it's very picturesque, but he's also very honest about the, the trials and the sufferings that he experienced as well. Yes. And he was born September 8th, 1841. And the larger area, I think, was called Zlonis. And this is about 30 miles northwest of Prague. And yes, his father was an innkeeper and butcher. And that was what he expected to happen for Dvorak, that he would be a butcher. And it's great. We actually have like the official certificate of this. He has a um, apprenticeship and it's very official. You know, the uh, we, the undersigned office holders of the Honorable Town Guild of Butchers do hereby present, you know, etc. Um, he becomes an apprentice in 1854 as a butcher. And then two years later in 1856, we see the official seal, I guess, that he has completed this and... Up until this point, basically, we've been talking about a teenage uh, butcher in Bohemia. Right. He's uh, he's about uh, 15 years old or so when he gets his, uh, finishes his apprenticeship, and he's going to have a career as a butcher like his father, probably. But it was the organ teacher, Limon, that you mentioned earlier that uh, really saved Dvorak's fate. In writings on Dvorak, his cousin Anna said... Antonin had scarcely learned to walk when he was given the apron and hatchet that are the insignia of the butcher's trade. And Evan, just to stop for a moment, who hasn't seen a baby take its first steps and thought, you know what this baby needs? (laughs) This baby needs a hatchet right now. Yeah, like father, like son. You know, this is what they're expecting for him. Definitely. And Anna continues in the letter, Uncle, however, in accordance with the family tradition, destined his sons for the butcher's trade. But it was mainly due to the influence of his teacher, Limon, that uncle was induced to release him from following the family calling and to give him to music. When Antonin showed little promise of taking to the butchery business, uncle at last resolved to act and took the boy to Prague. This is quite um, a situation here because we see so many times where in this time period, you know, a father or someone dies in the family. And if that happened to Dvorak, he may have never gone to Prague. He would have to stay there and be a butcher to help support the family. But fortunately, uh, he does play music in the church. Uh, as we were reading earlier, he has a reminiscence about playing the violin as a boy. Mm-hmm. And Liman, the choir master of the church, takes notice of this young man and recognizes that he actually has some real talent. And we also have some writings, I think, right, of Dvorak uh, describing this experience with Liman. Right. Dvorak later on in life reminisced about Liman and said, Liman was a good musician, but he was quick-tempered and still taught according to the old methods. If a pupil could not play a passage, he got as many cuffs as there were notes on the sheet. He was well-versed in harmony, though, of course, his notions of harmony were different from those of the present day, and he had a good grasp of thorough bass. He could also read and play figured bass fluently and taught us to do the same. But it often happened that where there were more figures, and among them several with strokes, before you could work it out, you would receive three boxes on the ear. So uh, Dvorak is describing this very strict teacher who's old school, not only in terms of his understanding of music theory and so forth, but also his uh, pedagogical methods, which we today would call abusive. But uh, Dvorak seems to be grateful uh, for the musical instruction, even if he's also not so happy to remember the uh, darker side of things. And it's 1857, he's about 16, and he's taken to Prague. That's about 30 miles away. And he's there to study at the organ school of the, of the city. And we see these first trips for composers. Uh, they're often 
positive, right? They're seeing a, a new area, even if it's only 30 miles away. This is a, a much bigger city, I imagine. There's more to take in. There's more inspiration, new ideas, other students, new teachers. But this wasn't especially great for Dvorak in that uh, book. We see another reference to his time here where he writes, At the organ school, everything smelt of mold, even the organ. Anybody who wanted to learn had to know German. Anyone who knew German well could be the best of the class. But if you didn't know German, you could not be the best. My knowledge of German was poor, and even if I knew something, I could not get it out. My fellow pupils looked a little down their noses at me and laughed at me behind their backs. And later on, they still laughed at me. When they discovered that I was composing, they said among themselves, Just imagine that Dvorak. Do you know that he composes too? And all those who laughed at me got on better than I did. That is, it's hard to read. You know, he's, he's being bullied, but almost impossible to think Dvorak um, being laughed at for composing. I mean, look at him now. Clearly, the uh, young people that he encountered there did not understand what it was they were dealing with. It's so fascinating, too, that he's in Prague and there's an expectation that everything is going to be in German. And of course, in this era, uh, this is 1857, this, uh, the Czech-speaking world is part of Austria and under Austrian control. And so there's this German language dominance in the culture, even in a Czech city like Prague. And a Czech, a native Czech speaker like Dvorak is looked down upon for being who he is. So he's got multiple things against him uh, going into this new career. And as you said, John, this should be a very exciting time in a young musician's life. And yet he's still facing a great deal of challenge. But thankfully, he stays. He doesn't go home and just go back to being a butcher. He stays in Prague, and in 1858, he joins an orchestra playing the violin, I think. And this is an orchestra that plays for, like, functions, you know, background music, uh, dance music, that kind of thing. But then in 1862, the orchestra was hired to play um, in a theater. And now Dvorak is playing basically in a pit orchestra, and he's playing opera. And this is when he falls in love with uh, Richard Wagner, who at this time, of course, and that's a pretty hot thing coming out for Wagner in the 1860s. So those are big operas. And so Dvorak has firsthand exposure to literally the latest trends in music all of a sudden. And it wasn't until 1861, 1862, that he really starts to compose in earnest. I mean, think of some of the prodigies that we've talked about and how many operas they wrote by the time they were even a teenager. He's about 20 years old, and he writes what um, I think is his first kind of opus, his string quintet in A minor. And it's a, it's a nice piece. And also the string quartet number one the following year, it's also very nice. I mean, I've listened to these. They are nice, but they're not something you're going to be listening to, you know, again and again. But it is an interesting, well starting point or jumping off point, I think, for Dvorak. Now, although he's writing music, Evan, he's not actually getting performances or being known as a composer, is he? No, he's still really trying to find his voice and uh, hone his skills. And we see just a couple of years later, in 1864, Anna writes, uh, Dvorak went for the third time to the military call-up, and all supposed that the strong young man who had never had a serious illness would not come back. We had wailed his going as if it were a fact, and all the greater was then our joy when he was not accepted. Another point where it could have all gone very differently for Dvorak. He dodged the butcher trade. He gets called up for the third time in the military. He's young, strong, never been ill. I mean, 
I imagine the 19th century, that's a guaranteed you're in the army kind of thing. Yeah, I, how it managed that he was rejected is a mystery to me, but luckily for the musical world. Yes. Let's fast forward several more years. 1870, he's in his late 20s. Still, no premieres of his music. He's making very little money. He's teaching piano lessons, just trying to make ends meet. And even paper is becoming hard uh, for him to afford. But in 1872, now he's like, you know, 30, 31, he has an overture to an opera that he composed um, and it's performed. That's The King and the Charcoal Burner. One, that's great he got it performed. I didn't see there was too much fuss or negativity about it. But also, he's had no real public performances and he's written an entire opera. I mean, that is quite a thing to put on when you're just basically writing alone in your room. And here he is, he's in his early 30s by now. He's still obscure. He's uh, he's really, he's broke. He can't barely afford paper, uh, but he doesn't give up. No. And just think, Mozart died, you know, when he was like 35. Exactly. And, yeah, yeah. 1873, the following year, he marries Anna Chermakova, and he did, I guess, the what seems to be like a composer thing at the time where he fell in love with a sister, but that didn't work out, so he married her sister, um, but they um, they stayed together. So now let's go to 1874. He's like 32 years old. I mean, he's definitely getting up there. And this is a turning point because we see him going to the state government, basically asking for an official certified letter saying that he's poor. Now, that's kind of a strange sentence, I think, today. I mean, you don't need a certified letter to be broke. You know, you can just be broke. But uh, this was life-changing because he was applying for an Austrian state grant that awards young, poor, and talented artists, and he need a certified letter to enter. And we even have this as well, Evan. He writes this letter, Dear Sir, I should be obliged if you would be good enough to furnish me with a certificate in German confirming that I am without means as such a certificate must be enclosed with my application for the award of a state grant for artists, such application will be sent by the 30th instant at the latest, Prague, 15th June, 1874, Antonin Dvorak. So this is roughly analogous to what we would think of as like applying for a scholarship, a need-based scholarship, mm -hmm. or declaring bankruptcy. But uh, it really gives you an indication of his circumstances. He really and truly is down and out. And along with this letter, he submits 15 works for this, this grant. And it seems like that was unusual. That's a, a very large amount of music to be sending in. And also, he was sending in large-scale works like uh, symphonies, in addition to um, uh, songs and chamber music and more. And the committee included the very influential Eduard Hanslick at the time, and uh, the head of the state opera. And Johannes Brahms would be on the committee too, but he joined a little late, I think, to actually do the voting on Dvorak. But Hanslick made like an announcement in the paper. Here is Dvorak. He's won this prize. He's basically totally unknown. And he included all of these works, including these uh, symphonies and more. Right. At this point, he's, he's written up to, I think, four symphonies, mm -hmm. uh, at least one complete opera, a whole bunch of chamber music. He's really been, you know, he has a very prolific career from what we know now. But even at this point in his life, in his early mid-30s, he's already composed a pretty significant body of work. And here he's finally starting to get noticed. And you'd think this would be an obvious big shift for Dvorak, right? But he ended up keeping his organ job and he was composing on the side Maybe because he was, you know, surviving up to this point, I imagine you might be a little nervous just to go ahead and quit right away when you get some extra money um, in just one year. But in 1876, he won again. 
and then he was able to quit his post um, and focus on composing. And then he won again in 1877. And this is where, Evan, we really start to see some influences when it comes to the the Czech style with the symphonic variations and the Moravian duets that were included here. It really feels like, at least at this time, Dvorak has um, the whole world in front of him, I guess. Well, 1877, John, is also a very significant moment in Dvorak's life because it is at that point that Johannes Brahms is on this panel mm-hmm. and Brahms becomes aware of Dvorak's music and he is immediately, unlike so many others that Dvorak has encountered earlier in life who seem to look down their noses at him, here is one of the great composers of the time discovering another genius and uh, the two of them begin this lifelong connection where Brahms is a fervent supporter of Dvorak's music, and it really makes a huge difference for Dvorak professionally and personally. So Brahms has looked at these works of Dvorak. This includes the Moravian duets, the symphonic variations. He's very impressed. In December of 1877, he writes a letter to his publisher, Zimrock. He says, Dvorak has written all sorts of things, Czech operas, symphonies, quartets, and piano music. There is no doubt he is very talented. So this is, uh, you know, coming from a a very uh, reserved person like Johannes Brahms, this is high praise. And then uh, later that, uh, the following spring, April of 1878, Brahms writes to Zimrock again, I should not have written if it had not been for thinking of Dvorak. I don't know what further risk you are wanting to take with this man. I have no idea about business matters or what interest there is for larger works. I do not care to make recommendations because I have only my eyes and my ears, and they are altogether my own. If you should think of going on with it all, get him to send you his two-string quartets, major and minor, and have them played to you. The best that a musician can have, Dvorak has, and it is in these compositions. I am an incorrigible Philistine. I should publish even my own works for the pleasure of it. In short, I cannot say anything more than that I recommend Dvorak in general and in particular. So again, here is Brahms being very forthright with his publisher. Uh, So this is on multiple levels a huge boon for Dvorak. He has the support of this great, well-respected composer who is also a very successful in the publishing industry, and Brahms is specifically recommending Dvorak's music to his publisher, uh, giving his own very clear stamp of approval on Dvorak's music. So this is huge for Antony Dvorak. Yes. Um, And Brahms had a great quote. I don't know when he said it, um, if it was later or, or earlier at some point, but it was something like, what would occur to me as a main theme for a piece occurs to Dvorak as, by the way. So for Brahms, you know, he works hard and he cultivates his beautiful theme, but uh, and that takes all this work. But for Dvorak, it's just like, oh, by the way, here's a beautiful theme. Oh, by the way, here's another one. Just uh, so on and so on. It's really beautiful to look at the mutual respect between these two great composers. So let's look at the Czech influence of this here for a moment, these folk music influences. One thing I notice about listening to Czech folk music, which I know basically none, nothing about, is that the melodies, they seem slightly atypical or harder to follow in my ears, in my mind, compared to my lived experience. So it's always funny. They, they sound beautiful and they sound like folk music, but it's like it turns in slightly different directions um, than you um, expect. And in 1878, he has his Slavonic dances, and this is a a huge 
um, coup for him, basically. And he's not using specific Czech melodies, kind of like how we heard with um, um, Sibelius and how he didn't use specific um, folk melodies. Dvorak doesn't do that here, but he's using dances that are of the tradition, like the Dumka, the Polonaise, the Polka, and so many more that I, I can't pronounce, also the Mazurka. So it's along those same lines of not using exact melodies, but incorporating that uh, that language into this orchestral music. And it's it seems like it was explosive at the time, the Slavonic dances. Well, this is a very, again, we were talking earlier, John, about the uh, the political and cultural situation. To be Czech in Europe at this time in history is to be, to some extent, under the thumb of a German-speaking Austrian influence. And here is this uh, very gifted Czech composer who is expressing himself in a very distinctive way. And as you said, John, there's a distinctive sound to Czech music, and as you were pointing out, he's not using folk melodies specifically, but like we, you and I discussed uh, with Sibelius a few months ago, there's this sense that it sounds like the music of a particular culture, even if it isn't a direct quote therefrom. And this is a very exciting development for Czech music. Dvorak, of course, is not the first to express a, uh, a Czech pride, a Czech nationalism through music. I think of a composer like Smetana, who really leads the way there. But Dvorak is really taking it to another level. And again, as you said, John, the success of the Slavonic dances, the popularity of this music is a huge boost both to Dvorak personally and financially and professionally, but also elevating this Czech style to a much wider audience. Uh, it really kind of changes the situation. I hear that too. It really sounds like Dvorak just took it and just elevated it into the into the stratosphere. And the influences of Czech are also thematic. A couple decades later, he writes some fantastic symphonic poems, but also scary because they're like based on these you know fairy tales at this time, which are um, I don't know more scary than I think you know watching something on on Disney today. Yeah, the Noon Witch is a good example. Mm. It's really terrifying, uh, you know bedtime stories that uh, leave you lying awake at night having or falling asleep having nightmares. Oof, no thanks. So in the 1870s, now that he's won this prize, he's had these um, um, big hits, things like Slavonic dances, things continue as you might expect. He has a violin concerto. He has another uh, symphony. He's up to six now. And actually Hans Richter asked him to compose that one for the Vienna Philharmonic, but there were I guess, anti-Czech sentiments and beliefs um, within the orchestra as well. And that caused a delay in performance and then ultimately like a cancellation of it. And I didn't find in any letters um, that I could see that between Dvorak and Richter talking about these specific reasons, like why it was delayed as to um, the anti-Czech sentiment. But I just don't know how much Dvorak was fully aware of that. But of course, he'd been dealing with this his whole life. So even if he wasn't aware of that in this particular instance, uh, it is unfortunately a reality of uh, this part of Europe in the uh, in this era, the 1870s. So maybe he saw it being delayed, but he could also read between the lines. Of, of it's that entirely well. possible. Who knows? But as you said, John, we don't have a letter or anything, any solid evidence. But we do know that uh, these anti-Czech attitudes among Austrian German speaking musicians was uh, not unheard of even in that era. Mm-hmm. Now, Dvorak gets another huge success with his Stabat Mater, which I believe he completed in 1880. This raises his international appeal, especially in Britain, when it had its premiere there in 1883. Apparently, it was just 
explosive. You know, the, the whole house came down, basically. And it prompted Dvorak to visit in 1884, and he wrote this. At the concert, my appearance was greeted with a storm of applause. The general enthusiasm from item to item, and at the end, the applause was so great that I had to thank the audience again and again. At the same time, the orchestra and choir overwhelmed me with the heartiest ovations. In short, it turned out better than I could have ever hoped for. This is another letter from a composer who goes to England or London and has basically um, a whole new experience, a mind-blowing experience. We see these letters where they say they were so happy, and they also often mention they paid me so much, too. Yeah, yeah. And having a great success in a city like London in this era really is extending his reach, uh, you know, further and further throughout Europe. And of course, he would return to that area again in 1885 to premiere his seventh symphony. And in 1887, Hans Richter conducted a performance of his symphonic variations there and said, At the hundreds of concerts I have conducted during my life, no new work has been as successful as yours. And this might continue as you expect. He's getting more popular, more praise. He's writing more music. He gets an honorary degree from from Cambridge. He's also given a position at the Prague Conservatory. It took a little convincing, but they got him there. And things seem to be going um, quite well. But his life and his music would change. Um, Not too long after this, when he's invited to head a conservatory in the United States. And we'll get into that right after this. Classical Breakdown, your guide to classical music, is made possible by WETA Classical. Join us for the music and insightful commentary anytime, day, or night. You can stream the music online at wetaclassical.org or through the WETA Classical app. It's free in the App Store. So now it's 1891. Dvorak is in his 50th year, and he receives an invitation to head the National Conservatory in New York. Now, classical music in the United States uh, is is still quite in its infancy. The New England Conservatory was founded 24-ish years earlier, but it was like everything else at that time. I think musically, it was really geared towards Europe, European standards, taste, uh, sound, um, and more. It was not, there wasn't, it didn't seem like there was an interest in cultivating an American sound at that time. Yeah, this is the era of uh, composers like we think of the Boston Six, so-called, the uh, the Second New England School, composers like John Knowles Payne and Amy Beach, mm-hmm. who are, you know, writing really interesting music, but they are, you, you listen to their music, it is still very much steeped in uh, European, I would say even very largely a Germanic mm-hmm. European tradition. So as you said, John, institutions like the uh, National Conservatory, New England Conservatory, you know, these are. This is a new era in American music, and it's still very much looking across the Atlantic. And we see the invitation. He actually writes a friend asking for um, some advice. He says, "I am going to America for two years. They want me to take the directorship of the conservatory and to conduct ten concerts of my own compositions for eight months and then four months vacation for a yearly salary of fifteen thousand dollars. Should I take it or should I not?" write me a word or two. In addition to those concerts, he also had to teach, I think, three hours a day composition instrumentation. But for those three hours a day and the works and the concerts, he got paid $15,000 or in today's money, 
$500,000, a half a million dollars. He has a lavish, lavish salary. Yes. Uh, the New, New National Conservatory was uh, very well funded by private donors, and they really wanted to get Antonin Dvorak in there because he was, at this point, hugely respected in Europe. And what a coup to have persuaded him to come over to New York. Yes. And just think, just uh, 20 years earlier, he was asking the government to certify he's broke to now getting that half million dollar um, uh, salary. And this is really headed up by Mrs. Jeanette Thurber. It's, uh, she has a lot of wealth and a lot of connections. And um, she's the one that invites him over to help cultivate this sound and to, well, raise up um, new music in the United States. So he takes the job, as we know. He goes to New York City. Just imagine that life-altering experience, packing up everything and taking your family across the world. But he does this, and in 1893, a year later, there is an article, an interview on Dvorak and um, his work at the conservatory, and it's in the New York Herald. So we want to read some of this article. It has some really eye-opening things here on Dvorak and also what was happening here uh, musically as well. So I will read a little bit here. The great bohemian composer has just ended his first season of musical exploration in New York, and his opinion ought to stir the heart of every American who loves music. I am now satisfied, he said to me, that the future music of this country must be founded upon what are called the Negro melodies. This must be the real foundation of any serious and original school of composition to be developed in the United States. When I first came here last year, I was impressed with this idea, and it has been developed into a settled conviction. These beautiful and varied themes are the product of the soil. They are American. I would like to trace out the individual authorship of the Negro Melodies, for it would throw a great deal of light upon the question I am most deeply interested in at present. These are the folk songs of America, and your composers must turn to them. All of the great musicians have borrowed from the songs of the common people. Beethoven's most charming scherzo is based upon what might now be considered a skillfully handled Negro melody. I myself have gone to the simple, half-forgotten tunes of the Bohemian peasants for hints in my most serious work. Only in this way can a musician express the true sentiment of his people. He gets into touch with the common humanity of his country. Now this is quite something to, uh, to see from Dvorak. He's saying this so plainly and uh, and so matter-of-fact, like he's just holding a mirror in front of us, or as if he's just telling you, oh, oh you dropped a wallet on the ground. Oh, that's the music you're looking for. Oh, it's, it's just right there. Don't worry. We could do an entire season of Classical Breakdown just on this 1893 New York Herald article yeah. about Dvorak and his comments about uh, black music being the true music of America and the responses to it. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a fascinating and uh, deeply thought-provoking thing to encounter. Yes, and unfortunately, this idea, it's basically antithetical um, to what was being sought out for music in the United States. And you can hear that in some of what Dvorak writes. He doesn't fully understand the situation and the history in the United States, especially when he says, you know, I want to find who wrote this melody or, or that. Yeah. And there was response to this, negative response. And the Boston Herald, in that same year, 1893, composers signed on in uh, disagreement, like Amy Beach, George Chadwick, and John Knowles Payne. And it was John Knowles Payne who wrote some of just like, the worst things I've ever read from a composer, most of which I'm not going to read, except for this line. 
He wrote, In my estimation, it is a preposterous idea to say that, in the future, American music will rest upon such an alien foundation as the melodies of a yet largely undeveloped race. I mean, just one of the craziest things you read from a composer. Yeah. And one of the most wrong predictions you can make in the 19th century. Couldn't be more wrong on so many levels. Yes. Morally wrong, factually wrong, artistically wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, I mean, today, virtually all music in the United States is inspired or directly uh, from black music. And this was an opportunity for classical musicians and composers uh, that was just totally squandered, I think, at this time. There could have been a different direction, um, but it wasn't taken. Well, it seems like Dvorak's perspective, however uh, naive it may seem to us now, eventually did prevail. But at the same time, it's fascinating to me you know, it's true that Dvorak obviously wasn't an American. There were things that he couldn't maybe have readily understood coming from another country. But surely he knew enough about the history to have recognized that this would be a controversial statement. So there's a kind of um, there's a kind of ingenuousness to what he's doing. And, uh, you know, it's, it's obviously very well-meaning. And I think he, in fact, did do a great deal of good in terms of his perspective and the things that he accomplished at the National Conservatory. But it's also this, uh, you know, yet another case of a well-meaning person who, without understanding uh, the nuances of the situation and without being in closer relationship with everyone involved, is maybe missing some things that are important. We also see this, uh, and we could, again, there could be whole episodes of many a podcast on these very complex topics uh, Dvorak seems to think that he have had he's had an encounter with Indian music mm. and in, in, indigenous music. And from what we know now, that's not really a very uh, sophisticated way of looking at what he had encountered. And there's a whole history of persons of European ancestry uh, trying to understand uh, indigenous music in this hemisphere and uh, not always with benign intent or with benign result. And again, this is a hugely complex topic, but uh, Dvorak means well and does well. And also, I think uh, there's a lot of things that he didn't understand, which maybe he should have, maybe he couldn't have. Uh, it's uh, There's a lot of unanswered questions and a lot to think about. Also in this article, there is an announcement from Mrs. Jeanette Thurber, who's really you know financing, helping out this conservatory, saying that the school the conservatory will now admit black students and that there is no limit on how many can apply and that there is also free tuition. I didn't couldn't tell if it was for everyone. I think the school was more tuition free, but I didn't know if it was all tuition free in the in this point, but that's what also brought black students to the school and uh, musicians and singers and composers like Harry Burley, who was a um, big influence and sung spirituals, um, exposed Dvorak to uh, spirituals, which also helped him, I believe, with his um, Symphony Number no. 9, which we all know and love um, maybe a little too much um, in this country, the From the New World Symphony. And he's doing this work at the conservatory, but he's also... He's homesick a bit, right? And now, I imagine New York had a, um, a Czech community, but it was actually Iowa, Evan, wasn't it, that he would find more community and even solace. Right. So there was probably some, uh, there were probably some Czech, uh, persons of Czech ancestry or from uh, Czech lands in New York, but it was in Iowa that Dvorak found a community of emigres. 
and he writes about it in this reminiscence. The state of Iowa to which we are going is 1,300 miles from New York, but here such a distance is nothing. 36 hours by express, and we are there. It is farther than from where you are to London. Very soon we are going to see Buffalo, a town near Niagara, and so we shall see the gigantic waterfalls. How I am looking forward to it. And now what shall I write to you about? I have not much work at school, so that I have enough time for my own work, and I am now just finishing my E minor symphony. I take great pleasure in it, and it will differ very considerably from my others. Well, the influence of America must be felt by everyone who has any nose at all. I love this one, Evan. One, because it points out a problem that still exists today. People from Europe coming over and not realizing these places, these towns are very, very far apart. I had someone, they were playing in New York, and they said, oh, I have a concert tonight in New York. Can we meet in D.C. for lunch? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, uh, I don't know. I don't know about that one. But we also see Dvorak saying, this will differ considerably from my others. And it definitely, it definitely does. And I think he did find some, some solace um, in this town, in, in Spillville. There's a, a reminiscence or a description of his time there by someone, I think his assistant that was with him, saying, the master's day in Spillville was more or less as follows. He got up about four o'clock and went for a walk to the stream or the river, and returned at five. After his walk, he worked. At seven, he was sitting at the organ in church. Then he chatted a little, went home, worked again, and then went for a walk. He usually went alone here. He had none of the nerve storms which he sometimes suffered from in Prague, and often nobody knew where he had gone. Almost every afternoon, he spent in the company of some of the older settlers. He got them to tell him about their bitter and difficult beginnings in America. In Spillville, the master scarcely ever talked about music, and I think that was one of the reasons he liked being there and why he felt so happy there. This seems quite revealing that he seems at peace, he seems at happy, he's not talking about music all the time. In other letters, Dvorak mentions going to London or Vienna or here or Prague, whatever. His face, his name, it's all over the papers and everything with all these concerts. Now he goes to this place, and it's just, I imagine some people are just like, who are you? And it's, it seems to be a, such a beautiful retreat for him, though. And he's really able to not only be at peace with himself in terms of this, this comment about nerve storms is fascinating to me. I'm not entirely sure what it means, but he clearly seems very content and of course, he's while he's there that he's able to compose some of his most, uh, some of his best known and most memorable music. Yes, the Ninth Symphony being one, and the premiere was a big success. And also, his American quartet was composed, I think, fully in Iowa, and that's also my favorite quartet of his. I never get tired listening to this, and it has a kind of, I don't want to say relaxed sound. That sounds kind of um, a cop out, but there's a kind of there's a solemn feeling of just freedom here and openness that I don't hear in his other uh, quartets. Yeah, there's really a sense of vitality, and uh, yeah, he really seems to have fully owned his own genius in that setting. And after a summer in Spillville, Iowa, he heads back to New York. In 1894, he writes his very groundbreaking cello concerto, which we did a whole episode on, episode number 57. But even with the time in, uh, with his family and uh, culture in Iowa, maybe some places in New York, he's still homesick. And we see a description of 
a situation, basically. His sister-in-law writes this. She wrote, On my departure from New York, when they all accompanied me on board, Dvorak broke into tears and said, If I could go, I should go with you, and were it only between decks. He's so desperate to go back. I mean, he'll he'll get at the bottom of the of the ship with a bag of chips and just uh, yeah. get me when we're there. Yeah. And so eventually, in 1895, Dvorak does return um, back home, and part of it may have been influenced by well, the conservatory things as it happens sometimes when it's being financed are really pushed by one person. Uh, Jeanette Thurber had financial issues. His salary was cut in half. He was paid irregularly, so I think it was probably nice for him to return back to uh, to Prague in 1895, and it's the last decade of his life, although he would not know that at the time. And while he's in Prague, Johannes Brahms is trying to woo Dvorak and his family to move to Vienna, and it seems like, Evan, this shows how much Dvorak was Czech through and through, because he would not go, would he? This is really uh, uh, yet another indication of his pride in himself and in his heritage. And yeah, Vienna, of course, a great place to be if you're a composer. But uh, Dvorak has his loyalties and his integrity, and he stays where he feels he belongs. Yes, and uh, not even the the promise of uh, using Brahms' money is enough to, uh, to get him to Vienna. And in 1900, Dvorak completes his opera Rusalka. Now, it's just one of 11 that he composed um, over the stretch of this time. And it's the most popular one. I think it's still the most performed one as well. And some beautiful moments in here um, in opera. Dvorak is not someone I always go to for opera. Usually it's like symphonies and quartets. But this is one I listen to. And... I don't find myself trying to switch to something else after, you know, 10, 15 minutes. It just kind of plays and I enjoy the whole thing. Yeah, Rusaka does have an enduring popularity around the world. I think it's really probably the only Dvorak opera of the 11 that he composed that is regularly performed outside of the Czech-speaking world. And he's turning 60 years old in 1901. And just think about his experience now coming up from the land, being dragged into a pond by, a, by cattle, learning his instrument, um, going to school, joining an orchestra, starting to compose, you know, all these things, winning the prize, New York City, he comes back. And his birthday in 1901 for his 60th is like a national holiday. Six of his operas are played, like, I think all around like the same day or so um, around his birthday, also uh, other works as well. And he was out of town for this. He wasn't even in town for this. He was. Um, he wouldn't come back until November. And that's when there were even more big parties and things that he had uh, postponed, it sounded like. He was absolutely treasured and still is, I imagine, there. Oh, I'm sure that he is. And it's, again, similar to our conversation a while ago about uh, Jean Sibelius. Uh, there's that kind of national hero status that uh, this composer is, uh, is granted by virtue of having expressed uh, the, the pride and the, uh, the uniqueness of the culture through music. And in 1903, he completed, at least his last uh, published work, The Overture to Armida. And this is an opera he had just finished a, a little bit ago. And it was the following year, in 1904, that Dvorak would die after being ill for about five weeks. And it's just, um, he had an incredible life, 
with all of these experiences, it's unfortunately it's unfortunate that um, something like the flu or a stroke or something made him sick for several weeks and took his life. Thankfully, he got a lot done in this um, in this time frame. Dvorak is really a very prolific composer, and many of us are very well acquainted with a small number of his works. We all know the Ninth Symphony. We all know the American String Quartet. I should maybe say we all do, but these are very popular works. It's a small number of works of Dvorak that have a very wide reach. And that's wonderful. They are great works. They're worth knowing and hearing again and again and exploring and studying and playing and enjoying. But he composed such a wealth of music, John. You know, if you look at all nine of these symphonies, if you look at all of these string quartets, all the chamber music, 11 operas, uh, many of which are not well known outside of the Czech-speaking world, uh, there's this huge wealth of really ingenious music that this marvelous composer bequeathed to the world. And I find the more I study and listen to Dvorak's music, the more of it I encounter, the more I appreciate his genius. And I'm feeling the same way. Now, there is one more uh, moment here I want us to to talk about. It was about a month before his death, and it's just a funny situation that I think he went through that I think we still experience today. Why don't you read us, Evan, what was uh, described here in this this situation that Dvorak experienced? This is a reminiscence from a colleague who writes of Dvorak. He was afraid of his illness. At the beginning of 1904, we were sitting in the Imperial Cafe when Dvorak entered. His face was overcast and he complained of a pain in his side. The doctor said it is lumbago, lower back pain. The composer, Malat, who was present, said, well-meaningly, sometimes they say it's lumbago. My brother-in-law had pain like that, and they said, too, that it was lumbago, but it was the kidneys, and my brother-in-law died within a month. Dvorak got terribly angry. What are you telling me that for? Was anybody asking you about it? You want to frighten me? Etc. and so forth. He thundered out at the unhappy Malat, who unfortunately proved to be right. I love this. Now, did lower back pain really have anything to do with what took his life ultimately? I, mean, I kind of doubt it. He was in his 60s. I mean, I have lower back pain. I think it'd be remarkable if he didn't. But I think it definitely brings him to a more familiar human mortal level for us and a kind of anecdote that I think, you know, a century and 20 years later, you can chuckle a lot. If this happens to me, you can laugh. That's fine. Um, this situation where... I think we've all seen it once, uh, one time or another. What do you? Who asked you? No one asked you for your opinion. Well, there's a poignant quality to this, also, John. I mean, here he is feeling anxious about his health, and this well-meaning buffoon. Oh yeah, my brother had that too, and he died, or you know, like this is not helpful. But uh, again, it's an insight into Dvorak as a person, this very sensitive person, someone who feels things very deeply. Uh, we certainly hear that in his music, and we certainly. Uh, have an uh, opportunity to encounter that side of Dvorak reading these reminiscences others wrote about him as well as uh, his own letters. And his legacy has really raged on with his Ninth Symphony, which we'll enjoy in a few minutes. And although I think fewer people today can recognize that tune in the second movement, you know, if you just sang it to someone on the street, anyone who's drawn to this art form knows the symphony quite well. It's usually or very often number one on our own um, annual classical countdown that we do in um, in November, and we're not tired of it yet. But there's one more story that I want to read, Evan, before we get to the symphony, because I find this so funny. It's just another situation with Dvorak. Uh, from his assistant or one of his colleagues, they said, One day the master asserted that the best of Wagner's operas was Tannhäuser. With this, Anton Seidel, 
and that was a big conductor at the time he was uh, conducting the Met- Metropolitan Opera, Anton Seidel, with this, did not agree, and it gave rise to a long debate, which did not finish that day. As soon as they met the next day, however, Seidel began, Well, I was thinking over yesterday's discussion the whole evening. I considered it from every angle, and I admit that you are right. From the point of view of opera, Tannhäuser is the best. But do you know Siegfried? When the master said that he had only seen it once, Seidel promised to send tickets for the next performance at the Metropolitan when he would be conducting. The tickets came for seats in a box in the so-called Diamond Horseshoe, a row of boxes whose holders arrive at the performance at the last moment, or usually even after it has begun, bedecked and overloaded with diamonds, all in evening dress. Of all this, however, we at this time knew nothing. The master put on an ordinary dark suit. I chose from my modest wardrobe the darkest I had. Whenever the master was to go anywhere, he was always in a hurry to be there in time, and on this occasion he made more than usual haste. The attendant looked at us in considerable surprise, perhaps because of our dress, perhaps because he was not accustomed to showing people to their boxes half an hour before the beginning of a performance. The auditorium was still practically empty, and the master, having pulled out his watch and looked at it, said, We've been in rather too great a hurry. Then we watched the stalls gradually filling up, and that helped us to pass the time. Suddenly, voices were to be heard in the neighboring box. Master looked around and immediately moved back one seat. I followed suit. The neighbors had come in evening dress, and those who came after them, the same. And so, we finally reached the wall, each in a corner, and waited for the lights to go down. At last, the opera began. Roundabout, ceaseless chatter. The master looked at the talkers, but it had no effect. So he paid no more heed to them, and, although their talking was disturbing, listened attentively. After the first act, we went home. Our attendant again looked at us curiously, perhaps thinking to himself, Strange customers these, when others are only beginning to come, they go home. At their usual meeting, Seidel asked the master the next day what he thought of Siegfried. The master confessed straight away that he had gone home after the first act. The rendering, what he had heard of it, was excellent, but that he had had enough of that perpetual and constantly repeated rhythm. That was a long uh, story there, but I think that is just so funny. So funny, you know, not understanding that for a lot of people in that era, going to the opera was much more of a social occasion than an artistic experience. He just wants to hear the music, but people are socializing, they're showing off their diamonds and so forth, their elegant uh, attire. And here is this great composer, one of the greatest composers alive, trying to enjoy this music of this other great composer. And he can't even pay attention because there's so much chit-chat going on in the middle of the performance, which today, of course, unheard of, but in that era, quite common. And just think about it from the concert goer's point of view. You're gone in, you're in your most you know, beautiful new dress. You're decked out in your jewelry and your hair is all perfect. And then you're you're in there, you jump into the last second, and then there's this strange, long-bearded man in a dark suit um, shushing you. And, uh, I mean, just imagine, Dvorak shushes you and you ignore him. I mean, that's that's kind of legendary, too. And I think musicians have all been in a position before where you go to something and then you realize maybe we should not have come to this and then you leave after the first act, but yeah. a great thing there. So that is Dvorak's life. We've really gotten a great look at him and his experiences through his letters and recollections of those that knew him. So now it's time to enjoy that performance we've been promising all along, Evan. So why don't you um, bring us in here? 
As you said, John, very frequently number one, or at least in the top three of the annual WETA Classical Countdown, Antonin Dvorak's Symphony No. 9 in E minor, From the New World. And we'll hear this performance by the Berlin Philharmonic, conducted by Raphael Kubelik.